He is a risen, glorious word. Now reconciled is God, my Lord. The gates of heaven are opened. My Jesus did triumphant die, and Satan's arrows broken lie, destroyed hell's direst weapon. Oh, hear what cheer Christ victorious, riseth glorious, life he giveth. He was dead, but see, he liveth. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, this is the day, this is the morning where our Lord, finding us still kneeling, mourning at the foot of the cross, in contemplation of the grievous suffering that our sins cause, when our Savior finds us, takes us by the hand and says, get up, dry your tears, I'm alive, and you're forgiven. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. The text on which we will base our thoughts, our meditation this morning, is found in the Gospel of Matthew, the 28th chapter, the first 15 verses. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. These are the words of our God. We teach, believe, and confess that these words do not have human origin. They come from God himself, trusting their message, basing our eternal salvation on what they teach us, and asking our God to grant us the joy he desires to be ours this morning through the study of these words. So we pray, sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Dear fellow inheritors of the great gift of forgiveness, have you noticed how we, we seem to have passed the time of unconditional surrender in almost everything? Our wives never fully give in and tell us that we're right, for example. Actually, when you think about it more in terms of the military, we never seem to have unconditional surrenders anymore, do we? We, we don't seem to ever see 
Robert E. Lee sitting at the table across from Ulysses S. Grant in Appomattox Courthouse. We don't see the Japanese delegation on the USS Missouri unconditionally surrendering to the Allied forces under MacArthur. We don't see that anymore. Now what we see are things like Korea and the Middle East and Afghanistan. What we see is conflicts that where we can't even really always identify how they started. They just kind of grow into conflict and then they just go on and on and on, interminably. There never seems to be an end. Frustrating as such things are, use this to instruct yourself about the enemies that you face. Because this is what they are like. They will never yield. They will never capitulate. There's nothing else in their existence but to continue on and on and on attacking, never surrendering until God calls this creation of ours to an end. Easter proves this in a most tangible way. Easter proves exactly what our enemies are like. Think about it. Jesus here imposed on them such a devastating, catastrophic defeat. It was as if nuclear weapons were, were exploded above every single one of the evil forces of Satan. And you look at that and you think, how could they ever go on? Why would they ever go on? They could do nothing to undo what had been done. The victory that Jesus won first on Calvary, with that immutable, unchangeable divine decree, it is finished. Your sin debt has been paid by me. And they could do nothing against this morning, Easter morning, when God said, I accept that payment as payment in full for the sins of the world. By raising Jesus from the dead, God declared the world's sin debt has been paid. They could do nothing with that. How could they? It had been established. It had been proven. It had been witnessed to. And yet they struggled on. Who would ever do such a thing? Who would ever refuse to personally benefit from this? This established fact. Who would ever refuse, since our sin debt has been paid, thereby removing from Satan's arsenal any sin with which he could accuse us? He has nothing left. He has no evidence to bring on the day of judgment against God's children. His evidence was sin, and sin has been erased, paid for. So who would ever since that gift is ours when the Holy Spirit brings us to faith, who would ever not want that? Who would ever refuse that gift and say no thank you to it? Who would ever take what Jesus did, attested to so clearly, and say, no, not for me? 
Here again, we learn something about our great adversary. The devil makes the most bloodthirsty, warmongering mercenary look like 60s flower children in comparison. He just is ravenous. He doesn't yield. And so he contemplated this thing that stood before him, this victory, and he raged against it. But what could he do? He can't undo because God had declared. Jesus had done. It is finished. And so what was left to him? The lie. A lie. No more than that. I'll just introduce into the silly heart of mankind the idea, the lie, that none of this happened. That's the only chance I have. It's the only chance he had because it did. Do you realize how preposterous the lie is? Do you realize how easy it would be to disprove that in any court of law? You could call hundreds of witnesses, one after the other, asking the same question. Did you know Jesus? Yes. Did you see him when he was alive? Yes. Would you recognize him if you saw him? Yes. Did you see him die? Yes. Did you see him after he died? Yes. Are you sure it was him? Yes. And he was alive, very much so. Next witness, next witness, next witness. 500 at one time. There will be no doubt. The eyewitness things that you saw, we read some of them. John went to the tomb. Peter, of course, boldly runs right in. That's Peter. John gets there and then goes in. After Peter did, and he looks and he describes what he sees. The cloth that was around him was here, but the handkerchief that covered his face was over here, folded by itself. That's eyewitness testimony. So who would ever believe the lie that this didn't happen? Well, it's the only chance he had, isn't it? It's the only chance the devil had. So he started his counteroffensive immediately. We heard about it in the end of our text, didn't we? He started it by putting that lie into the Jewish leaders. And they told their trusted guards, who knew what happened, they'd seen it, lie. And we'll pay you for it. Here you learn something also about unbelief and how deeply that clause of unbelief can sink themselves into stupid human beings. Think about what these Jewish leaders and what these guards were talking about doing here. Think about the lie. They knew what had happened. The guards saw it and they came and told them. And they had no doubt it did happen. And they knew that they were dealing with something beyond their powers of understanding. This was something greater than themselves. These people witnessed Jesus and the stone being rolled away by the angel and all this. And they said, lie? Tell them it didn't happen. They were warring against the divine. And they were apparently fine with that. That's the power 
of unbelief and the power of that lie. And they clung to that in the face of all else. Now think about it from the other perspective. Think about it from the perspective of the witnesses that saw and testified. What was in it for them? Why would they lie? Would you? Would you base your entire hope for salvation on what you knew to be a lie? Would you teach it to your children? Would you stake your children's, your grandchildren and their children, would you stake their eternal future on what you knew to be a lie? There was no upside for them. No reason for them to lie. The godless rejected it, but that's the godless. Unbelief is nothing if not stubborn. But we really don't expect any more from the godless, do we? In fact, that's why we're here, because of the godless. Because they can't understand this. Unbelief has closed their hearts, their minds to understanding this. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 2, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. These spiritual things are only understood through by means of the Spirit, that is faith. So unbelievers can't, which is why we're here. Because the only thing that can awaken them from this death and give them that spirit is that word of God that we're called to bring them. This simple message of what happened on Good Friday and then what happened on Easter and what that means. But now what about the, the Christian church as it's called or recognized today? Because the godless are going to do what they're going to do, and we're called to witness to them. We know that we have work to do there, but what about, what about the Christian church? We read in our text that some of the disciples, they went and told, they, understand, they went and made this story up about, yeah, they, they, his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. That was their, the story they were supposed to tell but what about the Christian churches now? The very disciples who are stealing away Christ from their people by claiming that He did not rise. It's a common teaching now in sections of the so-called Christian church. And this Christians is a hill that we have to defend this is the heart and soul of the Christian faith, that hill of Calvary and what happened there. And then the empty tomb and how that gave God's testimony to what happened there. This is the hill we have to defend because it is being attacked from every side. Christ didn't really rise physically from the dead. He rose metaphorically. He rose spiritually. He rose poetically in our hearts in the hearts of all who resolve never to forget him. That's how he rose. Man, stupid man, may be 
tempted to believe that lie, but Scripture doesn't, Scripture doesn't allow it. You heard it earlier in that beautiful summary that Paul gave us about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And here's the result of that teaching. If Christ be not raised, your faith is futile, of no value. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, guess what? Neither are you. All depends on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our resurrection depends on Him. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, if there is no resurrection, have perished. If in Christ, in fact, we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Don't buy into a lie. God the Holy Spirit leads you or led you, has led you to this hill, to Calvary. And that's the hill that we have to defend against the errors that assault it continually and will assault this hill until Christ returns. Through every means, by that lie that they love. What you say happened there didn't happen. This is a hill that we cannot afford to fail to defend. The resurrection of Jesus Christ stands as the permanent, irrefutable evidence of what happened on that hill on Calvary. God's declaration, you remember the test. If my son is still in the tomb on the third day, he failed. And that's exactly the teaching, unfortunately, of so much of the Christian church today. They teach, since he only rose metaphorically, he was still in the tomb on the third day and had failed God's test. Because God said, if he's still there, he failed, and you're still in your sins. The last hope for mankind is gone. And you're the most to be pitied, by the way, if you still believe that. They've destroyed all of the Christian faith by believing this one silly lie. But the other half of the test, if that tomb is empty, then that is my declaration, immutable, eternal, unchangeable that my son was victorious. That he did exactly what he set out to do. He paid the sum total of your sin debt in full. Because of that empty tomb and your share in that empty tomb, because we died with Christ so we also will rise with Christ, your share what that says to you is God telling you your sins, your sins are forgiven. They were paid by my son. That's why the empty tomb is to us what it is and how it is robbed by the lie. The empty tomb is for us the promise of God that I stand now in his sight through no merit of my own, only because of what Jesus did on 
Calvary, I stand holy and forgiven, sinless. No one can bring any charge against me because Jesus took all of the guilt and the punishment of that sin on the cross. Christians, the tomb is empty. Christ has risen. Your sins are forgiven. Peace has been established between you and your God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is simply trusting that He did what He said He did. He accomplished what He set out to accomplish. Trust in what God's Word tells us actually happened. Through faith in Jesus Christ, eternal life is yours. And as Paul said, nothing in heaven and on earth can take that from you, can undo God's promise. Your sins are forgiven, and your Savior lives. By this truth, we live. And in this truth, we die. But only to rise again, because He rose. Amen.